a customer engages with a company across a variety of channels, email, Zendesk, Salesforce, online advertising, and many others. Unifying those data sources and getting a dashboard into the entire customer experience is the goal of UserMind, a customer engagement hub. If you can get all of the data unified in one place, it creates a tool that salespeople or customer service or marketing can all look at to see how users are engaging with a company. Michelle Feaster is the CEO of UserMind, and she joins the show to describe how UserMind works and the engineering behind the product. To connect all the different APIs from all of those other companies makes this a complicated integration problem. And hearing the UserMind strategy for managing integrations will be useful to anyone who is building a product with lots of external APIs. If you like this episode, download the Software Engineering Daily mobile app and you can easily discover new topics and old episodes that might appeal to you that relate to this episode. You can find recommendations based on your listening history, and if you don't like this episode, you can easily find something more interesting to you by looking at the recommendations in the app. The mobile apps are open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily, and if you're looking for an open-source project to hack on, we would love to get your help. We've got a recommendation system, a web app, an Android app, and an iOS app, all of those projects that we're working on. And if you're interested in contributing, we would love to have your contribution. You can join the Slack channel, you can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or you can go to the GitHub, github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We'd love to see you there. Now let's get on with this episode. Michelle Feaster is the CEO of UserMind. Michelle, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. UserMind is a platform for user engagement, and I want to talk about that at a high level and then dive into why that is an interesting and difficult engineering problem. What are the ways that a user or a customer is going to engage with a company that they're doing business with? Well, when you think about it, you know, all of us have become, we don't even think about how omni-channel the world is. So we engage through, you know, mobile and web apps. We engage through our phone. We engage through social, all of the social channels, right? Twitter and Facebook and, you know, LinkedIn, et cetera. And, you know, potentially we go into physical locations, right? Think about the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods, right? The the line between digital and physical is becoming broad and blurring. So, So really when you think about, you know, you or I engaging with any company, we have all of these individual channels that we may be receiving information or sharing information or interacting to get a business outcome. And I think the future of of really differentiation in companies is being great at that. And startups, if you look at kind of somebody like UserMind, the reason we can disrupt big companies is that it's really, really difficult for big companies to essentially deliver kind of world-class experience because they have so much legacy, legacy technology, legacy kind of org structures. And so I, I think not only is has the breadth and plethora of the way you and I engage companies just changed dramatically in the last 15 years, but the amount of startups and the and the amount of kind of innovation and disruption I think is creating this like literally it's like like 
companies are navigating between Scylla and Charybdis. You know, on the one hand, you've got this kind of new customer expectation and explosion of channels. And on the other hand, you've got these startups coming at you to disrupt your company. And so mm. how do you navigate between those two realities when you have, you know, legacy infrastructure, legacy organizational structures and legacy technology? I think it's a central challenge for companies over the next 10 years. So when you see a customer and they are engaging with, a co- let's say, a company like Amazon on mm-hmm. Twitter and Facebook and maybe they're some sort of ticketing system and they're talking to the customer service representative and then they're placing orders and then they're also being served ads. There's a multitude of data sources that feed into the relationship between the customer and the business that they're dealing with. How do you even begin to approach that when there are when it's like a, an end-to-end, well, it's just a lot of different relationships. Yeah, no, I well one, I think you hit on the central word. So I think that the mega shift in buying is really distilled down into the shift from transactional buying to relationship engagement. And there's a lot of implications of that, right? So one, clearly, you know, when I engage in each channel, my data is going and being collected into all of these different siloed systems and teams. You know, think about how companies grew up. You know, marketing adopted a whole set of technology to engage you and I, and they're listening on all these channels, but the information about you and I is being, you know, kind of funneled into siloed applications. Likewise, sales is collecting data about their engagements with us. So is the call center. You know, the m- mobile app probably has instrumentation to collect our geography and collect our click interactions. But fundamentally, there's a very hard technology problem that's emerged there. And when you think about the, the idea of a relationship, you know, how would you put a relationship front and center to your interaction with URI? There's two core pieces of that. One, you want to actually have context on all the history. You want to have somewhere you can go that has every piece of data about my historical interaction. Because to be honest, if you know how I've historically interacted, that actually has an impact to how you might engage me in the future. Simple examples, right? I prefer SMS. Maybe you like email, you know, I'm on social and you're not, you know, I like the call center, you don't. So there's so much that we can do if we can understand and kind of mine and connect all that data. So that's kind of technology problem one. And the second technology problem is one, it's a a technology term called orchestration, but the idea is that in real time, you want to be able to kind of send user actions to to some system. And, you you know, you gave the example of the call center. Well, how many times have you and I both called the help desk or the call center and had to repeat four or five Mm -hmm. times our scenario. Even think of an airline, right? Our flight's delayed. We call the call center and they don't know that our flight's delayed. They they haven't already started the process of rebooking us. And to me, the future is that that data is going to be piped between those teams and systems in real time so that by the time someone picks up the phone, we've been routed to exactly the right call center person. They have all of our clickstream or our flight information right in front of them. They know we're a loyalty member, you know, whether it's Amazon Prime or a flight loyalty program, and they're already rebooking us. And so to me, these are the two issues of if you want to build relationships, you need to be able to kind of collect and connect all that customer data and use it to engage me more effectively. But second, in real time, you need to have the handoffs between systems and teams be seamless. And so to me, this is an integration problem, it's a data problem, and it's an orchestration problem. What's interesting to me, so my background, I've spent 20 years building software for IT. 
You know, I, I've been through the, you know, the age of pre-ops, right? I, I started in IT when there wasn't even an IT operations team. There were like, you know, server teams and network teams and storage teams. And I saw the rise of ITSM. I saw the rise of kind of service management. We went through virtualization. And kind of one of my core theories is that the front office is now going through a set of shifts that already happened in IT multiple times. So if you think about it, this idea of connecting customer data, it's the same idea of an IT CMDB that we that rose during you know the last 15 years as service management emerged in IT. The idea of orchestration. I mean, how many abstraction layers have emerged in IT? You know, when you look at it, things like, you know, runbook automation and service orchestration and service automation, all of these market spaces, Chef, Puppet now, it's all about orchestrating end-to-end provisioning. And so when I look at it, I think part of why I'm the inevitable founder of UserMind is I feel like only now has SaaS really driven a level of technology complexity into marketing and sales and call centers to where a lot of the traditional IT approaches now apply to the front office. And so that's really, when I think of the technology problems, they've, they've become very similar to things IT has been dealing with for 30 years. And when I look at the landscape today... It's a variety of SaaS tools. It's HubSpot, hmm. MailChimp, yep. Salesforce, you know, Zen Payroll or Gusto, I should say. And and as the company that's trying to synthesize all of those into a unified experience, your job is very much about managing integrations. You need a scalable way to build new integrations and to have those be managed easily because otherwise you're just going to drown in managing small integration issues and integration goes out of date and API messes up and yeah. you know your data gets corrupted and it's just a disaster and so I imagine this was something that was in your sights from early on in the development of UserMind how did you architect a scalable way for dealing with these individual and by the way so I just mentioned SaaS tools but you've also yeah. got Legacy and on-prem adapters, right? Think, think SAP, yeah. Legacy and on-prem and not to mention databases, like just like Redshift or, mm-hmm. or yeah, other databases, a service things. You just got every kind of thing that you're trying to plug in and connect together. So how do you architect yep. the integration strategy? Yeah, you know, so when when I started the company, one of the central, you know, a lot, a lot of software is timing, as you know, right? It's timing and kind of technology. And when I look at integration, one of the fundamental things that happened, so I kind of think most things are a logical chain. You know, one, everything's moved to SaaS, therefore everything has become a subscription, right? The business model shift. That to me is what's driven API ubiquity. So, fun, you know, first of all, UserMind started at a time when not only is SaaS ubiquitous in enterprises, which it wasn't even 10 years ago, right? You couldn't have built our product or our service. But, you know, APIs are ubiquitous. And to me, one of the most powerful things about an API is that it actually converges what have been historically separate integration markets. So when I started the company and I was, you know, starting to interview marketing and sales operations folks trying to understand the business pain, right, not just the technology challenges, I did a lot of research on the history of kind of the integration markets. And historically, there have been very walled gardens. There's been an ETL market, right? Informatica, you know, became a huge company solving the problem of moving data, right? There were BPM companies, there were EAI companies, right? You think of like TIBCOs and buses. And in the modern age, when you build an integration,
integration to an, an API, you can actually do all three. So that's the first premise of our, of our platform is when we connect to systems, our integrations are fully bidirectional and they both collect the data as well as trigger action on the API. So in, in UserMind, we try to think about what do people want to do with modern architecture as opposed to kind of using the historical approach people have taken for the way they've connected to those APIs. Then there's two second things I think we've done that are that are unique and correct. So on the platform side, you know, you already hit on it, but there's technology challenges, right? There's throttling, there's retries. You know, a lot of these APIs are not always available. So it's pretty fascinating that, you know, even though Salesforce is, you know, this incredible company and is, you know, dominant really in the enterprise, you know, the majority of my customers are using it in some way, you know, their API actually is sometimes unavailable. And so when you think about this world of kind of modern services, your integration approach has to be, you know, the, the platform architecture has to work with microservices and be designed to handle, you know, unavailable services, retry, throttling. In fact, I, another Salesforce example example is not all of their APIs are equal. You know, leads and opportunities actually have a very high performing API. Tasks in Salesforce is very slow. So we kind of thought a lot about just the core architecture, if that makes sense to you, of mm -hmm. the platform and kind of how to, how to just handle the world of services. The second thing I think we did that we got really right, far righter than we had any reason to, is in our in our interviews, one of the central challenges we heard was customization. So when you when you go talk to somebody or look at their Salesforce implementation, there are no two Salesforce implementations alike, right? There's a reason why for every dollar spent on Salesforce ACV, you're still spending three to four dollars with a services company configuring the software, and the met, you know the, the numbers aren't exactly the same, but like no two Marketo instances are the same, no two Zora instances says everyone are, is configuring these applications to reflect their own business processes. So the real challenge of integration is not so much versioning. That's actually fairly simple in a modern architecture. It's handling customization. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the old days, you built adapters, and then developers were needed to extend the adapters to be aware of custom objects. So the way that we actually approach this is we, we first, when we build connectors, we actually build a metadata ingest. And so we ask the system, give us all your customizations. And that literally, I mean, that's our, been our strategy from the beginning. So probably the central thing we did that was unique in the adapter architecture is to basically eliminate the need for engineering around customizations. And, and we can then refresh that metadata. So like one of my second customers I got live, every two months would put a new app on Salesforce and that app would generate a bunch of custom objects. And so it's not just about, you know, the initial set of customizations, it's managing the ongoing change of all those systems. And so, you know, our kind of our approach to the way we deal with metadata, we call them dynamic integrations. I think it's central to our success because the reality is that you need to orchestrate these awesome integrated experiences and you need to do it on top of an underlying set of systems that are constantly changing. Does it sound to you like an engineering problem? I mean, that, that to me is like, this is the classic SOA problem IT's been dealing with for 20 years. Help me understand, to what degree do you need to store data from these integrations. So if I'm if I'm some company and I'm plugging into UserMind and I'm yep. connect and I'm in, right now I'm integrating with my HubSpot and my MailChimp and my Salesforce and my Slack yep. I'm doing all these I'm, I'm plugging in all these integrations is UserMind yep. going to pull data from all those places and store it in a cache that makes it easier to synthesize and do stuff with or do you do you just make, you know, requests ad hoc when that data is needed? 
Yeah, so that's an awesome question. So the answer is a little of both. We offer two products. So when we sell UserMind, we sell our orchestration product and we sell a data platform product. And the data platform product is designed to store all the history. Every single event we've collected, think about creating a Facebook timeline for each user or each account. Every, you know, every known event from every system that we connect to for the key entities that you care about, right? Users or, or accounts or electricians or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the, the group of people is you're trying to build a relationship with. That's our data platform. The journey orchestration platform is really what is like a real-time event broker that, you know, essentially listens in real time and, and kind of triggers actions for user mind. So we do both things. Now, that being said, there is a deep relationship with them. So it's it's interesting. My perspective is that the future is data-driven workflows. Like the old architecture of SaaS applications has been, we, we basically have a giant database. Like look at Salesforce. Salesforce is workflows that are stored in a database. And most applications that we that we interact with are still working in that architecture. I think the future of applications is much more data-driven outreach. I mean, I think that's why the LinkedIn acquisition was so strategic to Microsoft is they're trying to leapfrog Salesforce to kind of the next gen of data-driven CRM. And so my theory is that, you know, you don't have to have all the data. But if you tightly couple the data platform to an action engine, that is the future. So as, as AI and machine learning becomes more and more ubiquitous, as we kind of figure out how to apply it in really specific ways to help the business, ideally what you end up with is a closed loop platform where you've got this historical data that surfaces models to us. The models then can be published into the journey engine and the orchestration engine and operationalized in real time. And then the results of those models can be fed back into the data platform. So I kind of gave you a long answer to a straightforward question. <laughs> and and we, we have customers that do one or the other. You know, some of our customers, you know, really are very focused on solving the, the real-time orchestration problem. You know, they'll say, hey, Michelle, we've got a data store, we've got a data warehouse you know, let's focus on real-time customer engagement, real-time passenger engagement, right? Real-time retail buyer engagement. And in that case, we simply focus with them on that problem. And mm-hmm. we have customers who, who say, no, 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 we're, we're not ready for orchestration. Our data is not mature, right? And we might focus with them on getting their data platform put together. So, so we try to meet customers where they're at in their maturity, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. And in the customer onboarding process, do, do you take a pretty white glove approach at this point because you, you, you want to just make sure that they have a really good and tightly integrated experience? Yeah. So, you know, my customers kind of fall into two buckets. One is kind of big, classic, hardcore enterprise companies. And we're extremely white glove with them for a lot of reasons. One, you know, they often have bespoke systems. So, you know, we were building integration adapters to homegrown systems for them. But, you know, there's a lot of organizational complexity. And my my experience has been that, you know, I think of our company as a category creation activity, meaning, you know, people don't walk out there today and say, hey, I want a customer engagement hub. You know, they're, they're not Googling the, you know, the category the same way they know marketing automation. And when you're doing that, I think your early customers are visionaries. And what you're trying to do is build organizational awareness. So in our enterprise customers, it's white glove because we want to not only get the software implemented, but, in, but enable and engage a broad array of stakeholders. You know, like one of my early customers is a company called Schneider Electric. And if you look at it, we work with IT there. We have, you know, four to five people in IT who work work with us. We have many people in their partner business unit and many people in marketing. So, you know, now 
literally, I mean, they've been with me for 18 months, but you know, now if you look at it, there's just for a single journey, we have probably 25 people, this kind of partner engagement journey, right? They sell to through electricians, their, their, their electric devices. And think about that, 25 people working with us to optimize that partner experience. And that takes time, right? So definitely in the enterprise white glove. You know, we, we also sell to SaaS companies, right, tech early adopters, people like us. And those companies generally want to get their hands on the software and do it themselves. And so we we onboard them, but, you know, they generally are, are kind of chomping at the bit and saying, yeah, 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 we'll take training. But, like, really what we want to do is just, you know, growth hack our way, right? So... Because they could figure it out. They can. They're they are really technical. By the way, the organizational complexity is so much less. Right? You go to a startup and you're dealing with marketing and sales ops, and they're probably one level away from the CMO and VP of sales. And just so, or they're all the, number, the same person. Or they're all the same person. Yeah. You know, in some some of our startups, actually, we're we're seeing a trend where they're collapsing marketing and sales ops into a single role. And those that then we have one stakeholder, and, and that person just says to us, "Yeah, got it. We got everything connected. We've got the data there. You know, we're just going to go, you know, hard building journeys, running experiments, right? Building rules. Get out of our way." <laughs> so we we try to tailor our engagement to the customer segment, right? What what will make mm. them successful? Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to run through an example or two of how user mind gets used by a, an employee who's engaging with it at a company and there's a customer that's engaging or I, actually I think a better place to start might be the idea of a, of, of a sales lead. I think identifying mm-hmm. good sales leads or being able to sift through your potential leads is an infinitely hard problem. And I, I know this from personal experience because I've just been selling podcast ads for a couple of years now. And it is, it is, it's such a hard problem. And I imagine it's, it's quite similar to selling a complex software product. So describe how somebody in a SaaS organization where they're selling some kind of complex piece of software and there's a, you know, it's a multi-stage process. It's not like, you get on one phone call and you sell it quite easily. It's a multi-stage process, and there's yeah. multiple different tools that they're going to use throughout the process. They're using mm-hmm. a CRM mm-hmm. like HubSpot. Maybe they're communicating with Slack somehow. Maybe they got they got absolutely ad tech that's running. They're running ads to try to market mm-hmm. to the to the particular sales lead. How does user mind factor into that equation? Yeah, so so let's let's think about what you described, and and let me let let me give a specific example. Let's say you're a SaaS company, and you're using ads to bring people to your website, and then you're trying to engage them in some kind of trial, whether it's a download or an engagement with your software, and then you sell to them. Could be inside, could be outside, doesn't matter. When you think about that, right, to, to your point, that's tons of different systems. So there's ad data. You probably have Google Analytics or, or, you know, Adobe tracking my web interactions. You've got data in HubSpot. You have data in, you know, maybe Slack. You have, you know, a call, some kind of customer success, Zendesk or Service Cloud, right? So the first thing that we do is we would connect to all those systems where you're interacting with the customer. And that means we're going to connect to, you know, AdRoll and Google Analytics, and we're going to connect to GoToWebinar, and we're going to connect next to you know, HubSpot and, and Zendesk. And we're going to map all the data together. And in this example I'm describing to you, we're actually collecting anonymous data, right? A user who is not yet named. Think about, we, we, you know, technically that would be like a device graph, a cookie graph, right? 
And then we have a named graph where I now have got your email and I'm interacting with you across all these systems. And so we, we basically map the data together. And that can be you know, just anonymous maps for anonymous journeys or just named maps for named journeys or we can connect as you transition, we can say, oh, we, Michelle went through that, you know, HubSpot form, and now we know that that cookie is actually michelle.feaster at gmail.com, if that makes sense. So ma mapping is the first way that we add value to customers, is we're actually connecting the data together. I mentioned that Facebook timeline, and now I can look at the UserMind data platform and say, well, Michelle really did these seven things before she watched this video and she read this white paper, and then she used this form on HubSpot. By the way, here's what she did in her trial, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how does that go back to like adding value to the sales process? Well, what we're looking to see is patterns over time, right? We're looking to potentially build ML models that help us understand, you know, or, or even just simple models, right, that help us really improve that lead process. And so I'll give kind of like just a simple example. So let's think about that. I go back to that trial problem or that anonymous web interaction problem. Quite often that data is not fed into your lead scoring model because the systems aren't connected. You know, or or how many times have we heard like, hey, I've got my mixed panel data and I can't it doesn't feed into Salesforce, I can't detect shopping cart abandonment. So what we're then looking to do, once we've mapped the data and we say, oh wow, one, here are the drop-off points, right? Your shopping cart abandonment conversions are terrible. You know, or your shopping cart conversions terrible. We have a lot of abandons, we then move into orchestration and we say, okay, these are the three areas we think are going to really help you improve. One, we're going to automate some kind of shopping cart abandonment engagement. You know, for SMBs, we're going to send you an email notification with a promotion to come back and buy. For big accounts, we're going to actually create a task in Salesforce, you know, or maybe we're going to take that usage data on the trial and we're going to use it to enrich lead scoring. So if, you know, a user does five or six things that we think correlate very highly with buying, we're going to fast track you into an op or, you know, move you to a hot lead or accelerate you into the SDRs. Likewise, if we if we see patterns in like, hey, the people who get to the form have usually watched a webinar and had a white paper, we're going to use that to do ad retargeting. So if we see that, you know, somebody's you know, watch the webinar, we're going to try and retarget them with the white paper because we know that that's the pattern. And so really, it all starts with connect the data. You analyze the data to find these kind of insights, right? Places where you're either losing people or patterns that indicate they're moving forward. And then we use the orchestration engine to operationalize those those situations because one of the things I found is what's happening is people just walk in every day and log into those tools reactively, right? And so really what we want is the data should drive the engagement. And that goes back to my point about why do you want a data platform coupled to a workflow engine is you want to say, gosh, I didn't just see a pattern around shopping cart abandonment or I didn't just see a pattern around form conversion, right? I want to operationalize my response to that. Does that make sense to you? Does that help? Kind of it does make sense. No, it does make sense. So, you know, it, it, do I have to do much intervention there? So, if I'm a salesperson and let's say, let's say I've closed five deals, like in mm -hmm. I, I started the company a month ago, and over that month I closed five deals, and you know, in one of them, a certain pattern of phone calls and emails and ads that were targeted at the user and maybe a white paper that was delivered to the user somehow maybe that was the what led to the final closing of the deal and in the next one it was just like five emails and then in the next one there was a phone call and three emails 
so oh, how how big of a data set do you need to gather to be able to start identifying like what are the most important facets of that sales cycle? Yeah, so generally we, you know, we're a pretty unintrusive system in the sense that like we don't generally work with the individual reps directly. We're working with the ops teams. And so we would be sitting with the sales ops teams and saying, you know, here's what we see in the data. And by the way, it might be us doing it for them, you know, building these models, or they might be doing it, right? We talked about that earlier. And so what then happens is once you build, you know, you, you basically put that rule in place that said, hey, anytime we see these three things, create a task for the rep, that rep just gets the tasks, right? And that bumps the leads to the top of their queue. So all they know is that they're, the order of their work is changing. And so we part, kind of part of our core approach is that we don't want to change the tools that the various teams are working in. We want to amplify them, right, and just make them more effective by applying intelligence in the background. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So tell me about designing the UI for this because I've worked with several different CRMs I guess user UserMind is an exact. I, I don't know if you want to call it a CRM, but bears some resemblance to some of the aspects of a CRM. I think. Yeah. yeah. How do you avoid the UI becoming something that is is like slow and and stagnated and and just problematic? Because I think of a lot of these these things that that have a lot of integrations and a, a lot of different data sources. These things that that are CRMs or they resemble CRMs in some way. They have a tendency to degrade over time. So how do you yeah. avoid that? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. So when I founded the company, I was so convinced that enterprises being consumerized. And, you know, there's a whole class of software, enterprise software companies that are going to be eliminated because they can't actually cross this chasm of delivering a consumer experience, whether it's because their technology's old or because the design isn't emphasized or just to your point, like they they kind of crumble under the weight of the number of features they have to manage. So I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. So literally, I, I remember when we were starting the company, it was myself and my co-founder. We hired two devs and we wouldn't hire any more devs till we got a designer. And we actually recruited it as a very, very good designer here out of a consumer business. Um, in fact, he did the early Alaska Airlines app and just super phenomenal. And I think, you know, for the first two years, that was a big part of our focus is kind of two core things. One, how do you just deliver this, like the feel of a consumer experience in an enterprise app? And there's a, I don't, I don't know quite how to put my finger on it, but I think we know it when we see it. So I spent a lot of time on that. And some of that is just how do you order the navs? How do you, how do you provide only enough data? And there's a lot of focus on click minimization as opposed to, you know, enterprise apps tend to have click proliferation. So we put a huge amount of effort onto just the core design, both and in our service, basically you're doing three core things. You're kind of connecting systems and mapping the data together. You're analyzing the information and, and kind of seeing insights and then you're building these journeys, right? That's kind of the three core areas. So, you know, we, we put a lot of focus on just the pure design. I think the other thing we, we really did is I took a lot of best practices or we took a lot of best practices from IDEs. So my theory basically is we're building tooling from IT, but we're making it accessible to business users. 
And so one of the central concepts of, the, of our service is that it should act like an IDE while not feeling like one. And a simple example is, you know, when you build rules in UserMind, you're building these journeys, the rules engine is coupled with the data platform. So we have comp- total autocomplete. So if you want to build a rule on Salesforce, you just, you know, you say, if you select the Salesforce icon and we give you the entire schema, you know, if lead status is blah, it's all fully guided. And so that we just try to really focus on a few core experiences and making them as simple as we possibly could. And, and, and really there's like two core things that are complicated. We've made simple mapping and, and, and kind of orchestration creation. And so I don't, I don't know that I have a silver bullet, but it's definitely been a very, very big emphasis for us because we want to reinvent, you know, MuleSoft has built a tremendous business, you know, selling to IT, selling to developers. We think that orchestration and experimentation is for, is for the front office. It's for analysts and marketers and sales ops and marketing operations. And those people need a development environment tailored to them. Dig deeper into that term, orchestration. What does that mean in in your context and how do you build a good orchestration system? Yeah, so orchestration to me, you know, the simplest analogy is is uh, it's it's kind of a term that the architecture usually looks more like a service looks like a service bus, but the idea of orchestration is that you're not executing a linear flow. So traditional workflow engines, you know, you you have an entry condition and then you kind of have logic that just branches. It's if then, it branches, right? It loops and it ends. And there's no real concept of nonlinearity. I mean, in fact, that's the opposite of a traditional workflow system. So orchestration engines typically are the workflow is, first of all, it's cross across multiple systems. So instead of the workflow living in a single system, which is very traditional, orchestration spans multiple systems. But when we approached our orchestration problem, not only did we want to build a workflow engine that like could trigger action across any system we connected to, our workflows are very behavior driven and think about users you know we don't we don't progress in an orderly path if i'm if i'm going to get my cable set up i may go online and request an appointment then i'm in the call center then i'm rebooking it right that isn't a linear workflow and so the second thing i think we did that was kind of intelligent is our architecture in addition to being cross system is designed to be completely nonlinear so when you build this user journey that starts with you know, onboarding a new cable customer, our workflows are designed to essentially track users who don't walk through a linear set of actions. You know, think about how we progress through a website or, you know, so so that's, I think, a really different thought process. And so when you think of a user mind journey, some parts of it are linear. You know, the call center workflow is pretty straightforward. But, you know, a lot of the web and channel interactions are totally nonlinear. And so that that's kind of a second central principle of how we think about the orchestration engine is it's completely event-based. Those are probably the two most important guiding principles. And maybe the third thing is like when a journey runs, it's running in production and it's just listening for events. And so it's actually, when you think about a traditional workflow, it's actually running the workflow <laughs> to some extent all internally. When we put our stuff in prod, we're like literally listening for real-time web clicks. We're listening to state changes in Salesforce. And so we're really much more like an ESB, you know, an enterprise service bus, kind of living there in production and processing the data and responding to it in near real time. Hmm. Tell me more about the software architecture. I'd love to know 
what cloud services and SaaS tools and frameworks yeah. are using to build UserMind. Yeah, so everything's built on AWS. You know, I think we were, this is my second SaaS company, by the way. So we, you know, I learned the hard way how hard security can be if you don't architect it in from the beginning. So we, you know, we're all kind of very modern SaaS architecture in the sense that every, you know, all the data is sharded, everything is encrypted in transit and encrypted at rest. We've gotten our SOC certification kind of pretty young for an enterprise software company, but we hold, in some cases, we hold very sensitive customer data. So that was kind of a must. You know, in terms of the overall architecture, things are kind of built as logical components. So we have an integration service, right? We have what we call the pipeline, which is the running journey set of services. We have a data store that's a service. And then we have a mid-tier aggregator and a front-end UI. And so we chose Ember. We really wanted to use kind of, you know, modern JavaScript technologies. Our code base is all Java. But, you know, it's interesting. We, we're very focused on adoption of new technologies. So we use Kafka. You know, we use Elasticsearch. We, we try to focus our engineering really only on building the things that are really differentiated, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then I don't know what everyone else has experienced, but we we actually, we obsolete tech much faster than I've ever seen. And what I mean by that is, you know, I started my career with on-prem software and the architecture didn't evolve that fast. And even in my last startup, Aptio, you know, we were, we actually, we built our own stuff and we, we hosted it. But, you know, it's amazing to me, like we've, when we started the company, we used some pieces of AWS now that we've obsoleted for new AWS services. So I, I feel like actually it's one of the things that's been really fascinating to me. And I'm the product founder. I'm not the technical founder. But, but you know, the pace of change of the underlying web service infrastructure is dramatically accelerating. And I actually think companies that get good at that really obsoleting even core pieces of their own stack faster and faster will gain huge advantage. And so that's kind of one of the principles that we use. I'm trying to think what else I can tell you about the tech stack. It's all continuous delivery. So, you know, kind of, you know, unlike what I grew up with, you know, we basically pushed to prod on a continuous basis. We are scrum, so we have two week sprints, but you know, that's really more for us to focus, right? It's real it's it's much more now about us having a team aligned on delivering meaningful chunks of capability to the business, it really isn't gated by our ability to deploy the software. Let me see what else I can tell you. I mean, all GitHub, you know, Jira, kind of the modern SaaS stack, you know, we use Datadog for monitoring. I don't don't know what else I can tell you there. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So tell me a little bit about the sales process, because this is obviously a useful product. I imagine the sales process can be sometimes difficult because anytime you're trying to introduce, like you said, it's a product category creation, mm-hmm. you're trying to introduce a new category and, and trying to convince people, hey, this can help you with your workflow. They'll say, well, this doesn't fit into my normal workflow. How am I going to do that? Tell me about how you are building out the sales process. Yeah, you know, great enterprise software companies that I've been part of usually have really unique, distinct engineering IP, and they have distinct sales IP. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you hit on something really important. You know, our deals are direct, so we have a, you know, bag carrying reps in the field who work with their pre-sales team. Right? That it seems like a little, even though our engineering architecture is modern, I think our go-to-market motion is pretty classic enterprise. You know, we benefit a lot, by the way, from the Andreessen EBC. So I don't know, you know, how many founders listen to this podcast, but, you know, they have this 
market development arm where they bring, you know, C-level execs into their, you know, enterprise briefing center and, you know, the portfolio companies get a chance to pitch. You know, a, a very significant amount of our enterprise opportunities come from that channel. You know, I, I, 30 to 40% of our deals. And a part of it is I think that like, you know, visionary enterprise companies want to see tech earlier. You know, they're, they're going through the same thing we are. You know, they're realizing that if they wait for Gartner to write an, a magic quadrant and everyone's using the technology, that they've kind of missed their window to differentiate. So I think, I think many, many enterprises are starting to collaborate with the VC community very closely. And so, you know, our strategy in our sales organization is how do we find early cloud adopters. So our best buyers are companies that leaned in on SaaS, right? Because if they're laggards, they're probably not the best candidates for us. They're not going to adopt us either. So that's kind of one characteristic. You know, second, we look for IT being very closely involved in business transformation. So the initiatives that our enterprises are generally executing are digital transformation, mobilization, right? You know, uh, trying to really drive mobile adoption. If you're a bank or kind of an insurance company, we definitely look for customer experience. Although within that, we really are looking for people who are focused on these customer journeys. So those, if companies have those initiatives and they're early SaaS adopters, really, really good for us. But, you know, the third thing we need is we always need a very senior sponsor. So we need a visionary who says, wow, you know, I get it. I get that that we need to be in this to be state and I'm going to take a bet on a startup like UserMind to help us leapfrog our competition. And so when you look at kind of our motion, our selling motion, usually this is what categories look like when, when we're early. We're looking for like the confluence of those three things, right? They're culturally early adopters of technology. They have an enterprise initiative that lends itself to the problems that we solve. And we find an executive sponsor who wants to break glass in their company and is looking at for technology like us to enable that transition. That's probably the, yeah. the confluence. Hmm. So we've talked about all the different areas of building a SaaS company at this point. We talked about sales and engineering and marketing. And you have a longstanding relationship with Ben Horowitz, who has written about building companies. I've, I've read his book, the hard thing about hard things, and it touches on engineering and marketing and sales and all these different things. Mm. And the hard thing about hard things is all about what is hard about being an executive. And a lot of it has to do with people management issues. And the people oh. management issues stem from finance and engineering and product development and all these different things. I really like that book. I've, I've read it a couple times, and I know you, since you've worked with him in the past, because when you were at HP, HP acquired his company, Opsware, and so you've worked with him since then. Now he's an investor in your company, mm -hmm. and I would love to know how much of his book you have found to be personally true and how much of it has applied to your process of building UserMind. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you know, it's funny. I probably don't know how to distinguish him from his book. <laughs> so I would say probably the truest thing, you know, I, I read his book, I think as I was founding the company or maybe right before I founded it. The, the truest thing to me has been what he called the struggle. So Ben talks a lot about the hardest thing about being a CEO is managing your own psychology. And, you know, the facts of running the business are very similar than the, to the facts of running the business when you're managing, when you're a GM in a large company, but your emotional state is dramatically different. And so I think about that to me has been 
central to my four years of becoming a good CEO. And I think probably it took me the first two and a half years to really adjust to the new emotional equilibrium I was in. So to me, that that piece of his book, he just nails it. It's like, I think every founder should read that and recognize how dramatic that shift is going to be. So, you know, a thousand percent true there. You know, it's funny. I talk to him a lot. I mean, Ben really is the CEO whisperer and he's, I go to him, you know, I have obviously some great board members, Matt Murphy from Menlo's on the board. But a lot of the time when I'm talking to Ben, it's about people and management issues. And you know, Ben has just given me these incredible pieces of advice over the years, you know, that I don't even know if they're in the book, but if they're not, they're probably implied. You know, one of the things I talked to him about was how, like when you're hiring an executive. So he talks a lot about don't overhire, you know, hire an executive who can do the job for 18 months, right? That's kind of one of his themes. It's a lot of times hmm. I think when we hire executives, we get really enamored of hiring this big name. We get enamored of hiring somebody who's done stuff at scale. And yet the things you need to do in an early stage startup are not scale problems, right? They're, they're like product market fit problems. So, you know, that's definitely a thing I've seen play out in my company and it's shaped my process. You know, if you look at my exec team, there's a lot of people in their seats for the first time stretching into their roles because what we need right now is is much more kind of execution than it is scale. So that's another example. But, you know, one of the things he said to me is because I asked him, you know, how do you know you've made a good hire? So I don't know if this nugget made the book, but if it didn't, it should have. He said to me something which, like, I love Ben because it's always so simple. He said, very simple, Michelle ask yourself 30 days in, are you getting leverage from your executive? And, and if you're not getting leverage, you've made a wrong hire. And you know, I like, I know that sounds really simple and it's the clearest articulation to me of like really true because great hires give you leverage. People should know more than you about their function. You're the CEO, right? So they, by definition, they should know more, but it isn't just knowing more. They should give you leverage in running the company. And I have used that in every exec hire I've made since to assess 30 to 45 days in, how are we? And it isn't culture fit and it isn't immediate execution results. It's personally, do I now get leverage? And I think it's one of the tightest lenses and clearest hmm. things as a CEO. And, and to me, that's Ben's superpower is he takes these incredibly complicated topics and he just distills them into it's the struggle, it's leverage, you know? And for me, that's that mental simplicity has just been invaluable because I feel like, is you know, it, sorry. Is, is it any amount of leverage or is there some minimal amount of leverage that your hire has to provide in order to be worth it? I think it's real leverage is what he's saying. You know, real leverage, mm. right? You got to get real leverage. You got to get lift. And every single one of the people who has, you know, been successful here has given me that. And it's different for each person, right? It's not the same exact, you know, exact thing, but it's it's like an incredibly simplifying question. You know, to me that's mm. that's one of the things I admire most about Ben is he provides this incredibly simplifying tools, right? Like, you know, the whole idea of the struggle is is to get you really realizing and compassionate to yourself and realizing as a CEO, you have to grapple with this. But I mean, a struggle is an incredibly simplifying description, <laughs> right? So, so that, that psychological calibration that you had to make in the early years of the company, yeah. do you have any suggestions for how to make that or how to expedite that? 
Boy, I think it's probably different from everyone. I mean, I, I did shoot everything. I mean, I got therapists. I went and got some therapists. I was like, gosh, I need someone to talk to. I also have a number of CEOs that I talk to, you know, a couple people locally who I brainstorm with. You know, I, I definitely, you know, I joined YPO, which is another kind of group that you can kind of find peers I think, you know, just finding people you can really talk to truthfully. Because the challenge of being a CEO is not only are you in the struggle, but you really can't expose that to the majority of people in the company. And so, you know, for me, I think, you know, certainly one thing was just, you know, knowing that that's what was happening was helpful. But, you know, some of it is just making enough decisions. I think, you know, that, you know, Ben talks about this job of being a CEO is an unnatural job, and there's no training really for it. And so I think a part of it is you just need enough at bats, right? I think some of it is like you you manage through the struggle and make enough big decisions that go right or wrong, and you develop more clarity in your style and how are you going to approach things? How are you going to be a CEO? 